0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. The series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I'm your host, Aliza Aracan, and today I'm joined by Rhoda Kanane, who's the author of multiple books and has taught anthropology and gender and sexuality studies at Columbia University, American University, New York University, and Fordham University. We will be talking about her book, The Right Kind of Suffering, Gender, Sexuality, and Arab Asylum Seekers in America, published by the University of Texas Press recently. So without further ado, welcome Rhoda, and thank you very much for joining us. I'm really happy to be here, and thanks for the opportunity
1: to discuss my new work.
2: Of course, thanks for the chance to learn more about this great book. Uh, I'm such a fan already, Um, and you know, I want to start with the beginnings of the book, so... This book begins with some chance introductions in New York, which you tell your reader from the start, but I'm also very curious about how your long-term investment in Palestinian communities also figured into the book. So can you tell us about your background in anthropology and your work as a court interpreter and how these kinds of work led you to writing The Right Kind of Suffering? Right. Um Well, gender and
1: sexuality asylum kind of uh, came on my radar by chance uh, some 25 years ago when, um, as a graduate student uh, here in New York, I uh, responded to a request for a volunteer interpreter that was posted to our departmental um, email list by a lawyer um, from Catholic Charities, And it turned out to be for a meeting, a first meeting between that lawyer and um, a young Algerian man who was being held in a detention center in New Jersey. So I knew very little about uh, asylum at the time and um, when I uh, accompanied the lawyer that day. And I have a a strong memory of sort of the amount of discomfort in the room um, when this young Algerian man was sort of meeting his attorney for the first time, this strange person along with me, another strange person, and having to tell us um, this very uh, difficult uh, story. I remember sort of the palpable discomfort um, in how he was speaking and sort of in a low and a very unsure voice um uh, telling us about you know his experience uh essentially of um, being caught with his boyfriend by his dad getting was beaten and then he ran away and stowed in um uh, a boat that eventually took him to europe and then um on to elizabeth new jersey um and i was told that my job today uh, you know the attorney said just please uh interpret uh uh this is something that's um sort of uh should be simple for you to do since you're fluent in arabic Um, and of course aside from myself being bilingual i'm palestinian and i was raised in a palestinian village with an american mom who spoke english at home so i could shift between languages relatively easily but i had no training as an interpreter and um also you know algerian arabic is rather different than uh, palestinian arabic but in any case um very quickly became apparent that um Being an interpreter was neither simple nor neutral, and I remember sort of recognizing in the moment that I was um, kind of choosing my words and uh, my demeanor to try and communicate to um, the young man that sort of uh, uh, to sort of reassure him that despite the fact that he was in uh, you know in a cage uh, with the bars surrounding him that he had done nothing wrong, Um, and I continued to um, do this on and off for years uh, afterwards. And I eventually decided to sort of um, take uh, what I was doing more seriously and give it more attention and make it sort of the focus of uh, uh, my anthropological interests. Um, so obviously my background as a Palestinian, my understanding of like the limits of uh, life and under under occupation and what life elsewhere means um, my language skills, my connection to immigrant communities, uh, as well as my own privilege as a U.S. citizen um, all, uh, and my training as an anthropologist all shaped how I uh, approached the subject uh, um, and sort of informed my skepticism about the types of suffering, uh, the narratives uh, that asylum requires but also the recognition of the importance of a gaining legal status in the US. And I hope I, I try to keep those two things um, in tension uh, throughout the book.
2: Yeah, I think that tension really comes across and makes the book um, really unique. And I really appreciate that. So thanks for sharing this sort of origin story with us. And I want to jump right into how you structured the book. So. The right kind of suffering follows four Arab asylum seekers in the U.S. as they navigate the asylum process and its aftermaths. But you also make it clear to us that the four people we follow are also relatively privileged within this broken system of asylum. So how did you choose to focus on their stories and what do their stories in particular tell us about the narrow pathways to asylum in the U.S. or beyond?
1: So when I first uh, started working on the book, I, um, I actually developed a couple of chapters that were um, sort of thematically organized, um, like around uh, the strange measures of credibility within the asylum system or around uh, the work of memory in asylum. Um, but then as I went on, I, I wanted my writing to be a little bit more accessible to a wider audience. So my idea was to shift uh, to a focus on individual stories to try and create a sort of more engaging and less abstract uh, book structure. Um, And um, so, and I chose sort of four people to focus on out of many people that I encountered because I thought that their stories were particularly uh, um, sort of uh, strong and sort of communicated uh, different uh, aspects of asylum. So I chose them for like variety, as well as uh, um, sort of the depth of my knowledge of their situations. Um, But, uh, And I'm only, I I focus on sort of how, on the many difficulties that they encountered uh, along their path. but despite these um, difficulties, they are um, from a larger perspective, relatively privileged uh, asylum seekers in a couple of different ways. Uh, First, in that they were able to enter the United States with um, tourist visas. So they were lucky and privileged enough to be able to access uh, tourist visas to begin with. Um, and the second is that I met most of them through NGO contacts, um, either by being their interpreter or um, meeting other people who introduced me to them, et cetera. Um, but that their connection to NGOs um, meant that they had access to legal representation that the NGOs helped them um, uh, get to, which uh, completely changes uh, the the game. Um, you know, there's different statistics about the, uh, uh, relative um, improvement in your chances of success uh, when you have legal representation. And it's uh, uh, very, very significant. Um, Of course, this is uh, something that the majority of asylum seekers do not have access to. So they were very privileged in that they had this legal guidance through a very complicated, contradictory, uh, dysfunctional system, which improved their chances of of success. Um, So, uh, uh the the reason why these stories are these privileged um cases is because of the way i uh did this research i was based in new york um i sort of started to do this more seriously around 2010 um And uh, had I been situated closer, for example, to the US-Mexico border at a different time period, or had I uh, focused on um, detention centers, immigration detention centers, the stories would be very different. So, you know, uh, as with uh, anthropology more generally, the the stories are a result of how and where I did and when I did my, uh, my research. Um, but what they the, the four experiences suggest is the uh, the, the significance of um, legal assistance uh, something that the system does not provide pretty deliberately to make it arduous to get through the system and let less people in um but the the, the attorneys that uh, these uh, four people had access to helped them um recount their suffering in a way that was uh, most legally impactful, advise them on the ways in which this uh, immigration system uh, measured their truthfulness and worthiness, um, things that are not intuitive or logical, necessarily. Um, They are uh, like hidden rules to a bureaucratic game and rules that you essentially need a law degree to unlock. Uh, So without this legal assistance, art the path would have been a lot more uh difficult.
2: Yeah, and you know, I'm very curious about the kinds of storytelling that the legal system sort of requires from asylum seekers. I mean you already told us about this a little bit and you know it's foundational to the beginning of this book. But I was wondering if you could speak to us about sort of the memory work and repetition that's required of asylum seekers throughout the process what kinds of gendered expectations come with this kind of imposed uh, repetition and memory work that asylum seekers are put through even if they are privileged in some ways
1: right right um i think that uh for those who are lucky enough to have uh, attorneys such as the four people that i focus on in the book the system is built on the uh, ability to really whittle down what are complex real life uh, experiences to kind of uh, um, very simple black and white story. Um, And especially, I think this is especially the case uh, with gender and sexuality um, based asylum, the narratives need to represent uh, one's country of origin, along with one's culture and religion as kind of the villains of the story and the U.S. as uh, the perfect savior. And for countries like Egypt, uh, Sudan, Jordan and Lebanon, which are the four countries that the four people in my book um, come came from, Um, Asylum narratives need to tap into uh, stereotypes about, uh, you know, uh, Islam and Arab culture and represent the victims as uh, the applicants, rather, as a kind of victim of uh, these timeless uh, cultures um, and the U.S. as sort of uh, the uh, perfect uh, rescuer. Um, So part of whittling down these stories involves a kind of... um, Focus on gender and sexuality victimization in isolation, also from other things that are going on in people's lives. For example, for um, Saad, uh, she had to tell a story about her gender suffering, and learn to tell it in isolation from other types of suffering, such as economic. Uh, the economic impact of uh, or, or her ex- economic experiences um, uh, as kind of uh, separated from. Uh, her gender experiences. So she had to talk about uh, and focus her narrative on her encounters with um, uh, police and their harassment of her um, for uh, uh, the way in which she uh, dressed but sort of uh, shift focus away from the fact that these encounters with the police delayed her and upset her and uh, delayed her from arriving at work and eventually she lost her job Um, but sort of uh, she was told by her attorneys that if she focused too much on her loss of employment that would make it the story focus on economics and that's bad for her case so she had to focus on um, uh, the, the gender aspect. So, uh, sort of the whittling down um, involves a kind of purification from um, uh, sort of economic uh, suffering to improve one's chances um, at asylum because uh, economics are not, cannot be the basis for uh, an asylum application, while gender and sexuality, because of the powerful stereotypes um, about uh, it, um can be can be make uh asylum uh, more successful uh in Fadi's case um he was imprisoned and tortured in Jordan on uh suspicion of having sex with another man um and he had to focus his retelling of the story and and, and the construction of his written narrative as well um on the sort of homophobic motivations for his imprisonment while eliding the sort of the class and ethnic aspects so uh, he was from a working class Palestinian uh, family with less privilege than um, his sexual partner, who was from a, a wealthy, uh, uh, powerful Jordanian family, um, and he wasn't uh, imprisoned. So uh, Fadi had to kind of retell this without focusing on the uh, the class and uh, and Palestinian aspect of his story and focus more on the fact that uh, it was suspicion for having had sex with a man. Um so uh, uh he had to retell his story with this um uh, uh sexuality focus that kind of framed the menace he was facing as something exotic and middle eastern um uh in in, in faraway jordan so um uh, many also uh, many of these stories involve um prying into the bodies uh, and into sex and into a lot of privacy, that uh, private matters that one has to learn to narrate um, in, a, in a very a relatively public setting in front of uh, lawyers and judges and um, uh, interpreters, et cetera. Um, so the proper preparation for um, asylum Involves this kind of uh, a lot of contradictory uh, uh, requirements of asylum seekers. They have to um, learn to retell these stories in particular ways, as I as I just described. Um, but also, um, you know, tell and retell these stories that involve difficult traumatic experiences um, over and over to be able to tell them these particular ways with exhaustive accounting, with particular sequencing um uh and sort of w- uh, with exactitude um to sort of bolster their credibility while at the same time um after telling and retelling this trauma to sort of dull uh uh the stress of it um and make uh, uh the asylum seeker able to withstand the stress of the the day of their um uh hearing uh but at the same time, resurface their emotions, uh, and the, the, during the the, the actual um, interview or hearing, so that you know dulling the emotions and then resurfacing the emotions. Um, so, because the, the 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 adjudicators are deciding based on an exhibition of um, appropriate quote unquote appropriate uh, emotions during the retelling of these uh, 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 stories, so um, there's lots of uh, mind games that are played uh, on asylum seekers of sort of having to tell things in particular sequence, but not to sound rehearsed, to sort of really be really strategic, but sound unstrategic because too much strategizing makes uh, the asylum seekers seem uh, 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 ingenuous and uh, their credibility might come into question. So it, it's a it's a super, um, not only is, are you talking about traumatic uh, events, but it's also uh, uh, you're made to retell them under traumatic circumstances and with the traumatizing expectations um, that are super contradictory and confusing Um uh, and are in and of themselves sort of uh, part of the uh, uh, re-traumatizing of asylum seekers in in the process. And that's how the system is really built at the moment.
2: Yeah, thank you for, you know, taking us through really the work that asylum seekers have to put into this process. I mean, both emotionally and it becomes a performance. And, you know, as you were telling us how sort of the legal system um makes that, that necessary something also struck out to me was also how that depends on reproducing certain stereotypes about the Middle East and I was intrigued by how Home plays a role in gendering asylum proceedings. For example, with Fadi, you mentioned, and Marwa, for instance, we see that cutting off ties with home supposedly bolster claims to asylum, especially for LGBT asylum seekers. So then, how does the asylum process remake? Home and portray an Arab elsewhere.
1: Yeah, thank you. That's a good, a very good question. Um, I think the cases of uh, Marwa and Fadi, in particular, um, speak well to this. Uh, to, to your question, um, Marwa was advised, um, by her attorney, to, uh, cut off contact with her family while she was seeking asylum. She had a very um, damaged relationship with them. Um, to begin with, uh. But during her period in which she was seeking asylum, she also um, uh, sort of uh, hoped for and forms various forms of uh, support and uh, her attorney made it clear to her that she had to cut off uh, her family in order to improve her chances of uh, getting asylum. Um, if she was going to be uh, presenting a story about um, Seeking asylum in the U.S. to escape uh, her uh, experiences in Lebanon, um, where she had been, um, she had encountered difficulties on multiple uh, levels, but had to whittle down her story to uh, to make it about uh, her experiences as a young lesbian whose um, parents were very unhappy with her uh, rebellious behavior um and uh, focus on that aspect as a, a Shiite uh, a woman in a Shiite family, rather than her other experiences being a feminist activist and being an environmental activist, uh, and, and being a queer activist as well. So um uh, and her encounters her, her difficulty w- with um, uh, uh what she thought was uh, um, government spying on her her activism. So the, the story shifted to focus on her, Uh, sort of private uh, uh, difficulties and uh, forced her to sort of um, tell a story where she uh, was sort of renunciating her background entirely. And this is very common uh, um, uh, in asylum, and I think particularly in gender-sexuality asylum, that one repudiates one's um, culture of origin. And Marwa, as she went through this, uh, became more and more aware of what was happening. And um, at the point that she was able to, and and after she received asylum, um, and as she was waiting for her green card and eventually her citizenship, she she began to push back more and more um, against this requirement and um, decided to actually uh, reach out to her family eventually and uh, to work on repairing her relationship with them. And uh, her, uh, she, she worked very hard on um, restoring her relationship with her mother, who eventually um was able to come to visit her in the U.S and help her with her new uh queer family um and uh, she had uh, very sweet uh twin uh boys that her mother came and uh, so this mother was extremely intolerant and is portrayed in her asylum narrative uh, as uh um uh, sort of this abusive uh um uh, agent of Islamic culture uh, became her, uh, a major support for uh, Marwa and her queer family. So, so this possibility of this happening is sort of foreclosed by the way in which asylum uh, uh, stories are uh, need to be structured. Um, but I, as I said, Marwa was able to eventually push back against this, repair her relationship with her parents, and repair eventually, much later, her relationship with uh, with her sense of home uh, in Lebanon, that she wanted the U.S. and Lebanon to be home, not just uh, the U.S. Um, and though the requirements of asylum is that you must uh, sort of cut off ties with your country of origin entirely. Uh, she refuses and uh, uh, with with some um, sort of uh, risk to uh, should she be so unlucky as to have her um, asylum case examined um, afterwards. uh she decided that it was she wanted to reestablish a relationship to Lebanon to have her children have a relationship with Lebanon. As as flawed and as imperfect as the place is, um, she refused. She she wanted to re- work on repair um, uh, as opposed to sort of uh, repudiation and, and and complete cutting off. And she she studied law and eventually became a lawyer and was became sort of stronger and stronger in her ability to to push back in this way. Um, For Fatty, there was a a sort of a similar shift in his relationship to Jordan. He articulates it in in different ways. But um, uh, although he um, had a very difficult experience um, uh, with police harassment uh, in relation to uh, having sex with men, he also was able to... um, uh, come out to his older brother later on after, again, after he was granted asylum um, and had a very uh, positive experience with that and a very healing one for him um, and was able to travel to visit his family with one of his boyfriends. And uh, when he came out to his brother, uh, that brother uh, embraced him and his boyfriend and invited them to, you know, iftar dinner. And it was, this was a really, a uh, uh, um, positive experience for Fatty, one that sort of foreclosed in principle by the way in which he had to tell his story um, within the asylum system. So the, the complexity of Jordan being a place where he could be imprisoned and tortured for having sex with him or had, under suspicion of having had sex with a man and having a family uh, and a brother who accepts him and um, embraces him and loves him um, at the same time uh, the sort of the, the, the Jordan like other places is a very complex place where this is possible. but uh, in asylum, you have to describe it as this very black and white uh, place where that could never happen. So um, again, there's uh, uh, um, this uh, attempt to reclaim um, uh, one's life and one's complexity, after having uh, made it, uh, uh, robbed it of uh, where the science system really robs it of that complexity, and it's it's a difficult um, and, and uh, process and one that uh, um, I enjoyed learning about.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
2: Yeah, I want to follow up on this notion of, you know, erasure of nuance in asylum processes, right? And so you're clear about wanting to add nuance to stories of the asylum seekers by providing these very rich accounts, but you also had some concerns and feedback about, the possible issues that might come with this kind of nuance. So what is that stake for you in adding nuance to these stories and how did you grapple grapple with the possible repercussions of doing this kind of storytelling?
1: Um so in in trying to um re uh, tell these stories I attempted to reintroduce nuance that um, had been taken away um, by the asylum system um to allow again for complexity, for nuance, for for contradictions. But of course, that would not have worked within the asylum system, right? It's built on a, uh, on a structure in which those nuances would have harmed uh, the chances of uh, the asylum seeker's success. Um, And had I been one of uh, the asylum seeker's attorneys, I would have similarly sort of stripped down the stories, you know, the way in which uh, Fatima's attorney was able to take her really, you know, everybody's life stories is uh, uh, complex and contradictory and sort of whittle it down to 15 bullet points that um, was the most uh, um, politically, um, legally impactful and um, not using Fatima's own language, but sort of using this uh, legal lingo that made it really hard-hitting and um, and powerful within the legal system. But once the grant of uh, asylum is is complete, and you know, I was very lucky to have been following cases where this uh, was the case. Sometimes after much, much delay, um, but a success in the end. Um, her story you know, the story could continue to circulate in this very abstract and stereotyped uh uh way and i felt it was necessary to sort of reinfuse um, um some reality and some uh, some complexity um outside of uh, the the legal system um and i think that that's important because Those simple stories, when they circulate beyond uh, sort of the strategic uh, essentialism necessary inside of the court or inside of the legal the uh, immigration system, those stories feed and reinforce stereotypes that then prop up policies in the long run in relationship to these countries of origin that produce more asylum seekers. So they're they're sort of uh, part of an ongoing. Uh, cycle where these stereotypes feed into situations and uh, sort of regimes and foreign policies and uh, foreign wars that then produce more asylum seekers that then <laughs> need to uh, sort of tell these stories in simplistic, stereotypical ways that, and so on and so forth. So I felt it was um, important to try and disrupt that uh, that uh, cycle by um, uh, telling more complex stories and about sort of uh, a, a little bit more about the, the U.S., uh, um, Uh, culpability uh, in this cycle. Um, So I think, for example, um, uh, in Fatima's story, um, she was uh, incredibly lucky to be able to um, stay in this country because of her um, sort of a kind of gender exception for her, while her two sons had been deported uh, to Egypt. Um, because they didn't have access to that type of asylum. Um, so the, the, the same system that gave, that allowed in, um, Fatima was premised on the exclusion of her own sons, which is part of the sort of the, her ongoing difficulty po- post, um, uh, asylum was having no family, um, um, after her sons were, were deported and it, which intensified her, um, uh, difficulties even after she was able to, uh, get asylum. Um, and she actually had a, a very serious, uh, setback in her mental health after asylum her, she was granted asylum and uh as a result lost her job where she was a living nanny and uh, sort of lost her source of income as well as her housing so she became homeless uh, at the same time so the, you know the story of like you know you uh, are work are working um up towards uh, asylum in which point all doors open etc that the stories are actually a lot more um uh zigzaggy back and forth up and down
0: down um in in
2: reality yeah yeah i i really appreciate that attention you bring um to this complexity um something else that stood out to me was complicity right um so you're honest about being part of the asylum machine as an interpreter but you also show us that your relationships with asylum seekers extended beyond law offices and courtrooms. So how did you position yourself within uh, or maybe in the face of complicity with the system? Right. Yeah, that's a, a, a difficult question. Um I
1: think um, it was it was palpably difficult um, as an interpreter to sit through and interpret um, sessions, practice sessions where asylum seekers were asked to sort of um, go over and over um, uh, very difficult experiences in these particular ways, and the sort of the traumatic experiences of practice um, with the the, the the contradictory expectations of how to perform during um, a, a hearing or uh, a interview. Um, And I was sort of participating in that uh, in that system. So I was going along um, with a system that was traumatizing people. Um, uh, I also one of the more difficult experiences was when um, uh, some of the attorneys would pretend to be a hostile government attorney. Um, that they may encounter at a hearing, and so pretend to ask hostile questions um, that basically drove people, the the asylum seeker to the brink of of crying and often to crying um, as part of a prep for that actually occurring. Um, so, so kind of doing the dirty work of the government attorney for them um, before we even encounter the government attorney in uh, um, in the hearing. Um, so, and I, and I think a lot of attorneys who participate in the system are similarly aware of their sort of uh, of their role in doing this. Um, however, in order to play by the rules of the game and to give them a chance of success, this is what is currently necessary. Of course, stepping back from it and thinking more critically about the requirements of the asylum system, one uh, wants to push back uh, 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 on this uh, on the way the system is set up. But in we, participating in it and choosing, in quotation marks, choosing to go and apply for asylum. Of course, with limited other options and uh, with the system being the way it is, um, one um, uh, does participate in these very problematic uh, uh, um, relationships. So... Um, I, I think that part of writing the book is to was examining this um, and trying to um, put out uh, a kind of uh, larger questions. But why is the system structured this way, and why are these the requirements, and why is this relationship um, um, the way it is? And uh, sort of trying to um, push back a bit more something that you can't do within um when when you when one is applying for asylum themselves um one has to play with the, the the uh the cards that are one is dealt um that are often very difficult ones
2: yeah i really appreciate you sharing that with us um you know something that also stood out to me as an important, but maybe, I mean, not understated, but not a main access of the book was time. So, you know, we see endless procedural delays derailing people's lives or, you know, your own responsibilities as an interpreter. Um extend as the process extends so i'm curious about how you positioned yourself within the time that asylum takes and i'm also curious about how it reflected in the time you know you had to take to write the book yeah absolutely i um
1: i remember um the a number of postponements that were particularly uh surprising and difficult um involving, uh, for example, in Fatima's uh, case, when her hearing finally, you know, the dates are given... Uh, depending on when one applies for asylum, the wait periods uh, can be quite long. And at the moment, they are getting longer and longer um, because the system is built to um, have very few decision makers. Even with the influx of additional applicants, uh, what the the result is that you have a system that is really bogged down and very, very slow uh, moving. So when um, Fatima eventually got her asylum hearing this was supposed to be, you know, the time where her case would be decided. After settling into court, there a, a fire alarm in the building went off, just completely unrelated to what 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 uh, the case was about. Um, it was just an accident. I'm not sure what the cause of the fire alarm was, but uh, we had to vacate the building and her case was postponed and had to be you know she had to wait for rescheduling which took a a significant amount of time she had another uh mental health episode at during um uh, shortly thereafter so uh it, the, the the um the uh small things like a fire alarm in a building caused significant uh, anguish to her and a significant delay continuing in this state of limbo without uh, um, knowing her her uh, long-term status, uh, whether she'd be able to stay in this country legally or not. Similarly for um, uh, Saad, she had one of her, she had multiple postponements really. And one of them was as a result of a, the government, the last uh, uh, previous government shutdown, where you know a, a lot of government bureaucracy uh, got really um, uh, delayed and therefore her hearing got delayed. Another one of her hearings got delayed um, canceled of uh, and with the, I think it was the morning of if I remember correctly um because they scheduled a Christmas party at the courthouse and uh, therefore cleared the, the schedule of the of the judge for the day and that happened to be her hearing so I mean really cruel <laughs> um uh the postponements and you know each time things got re- get rescheduled it could be, you know, a year or two until the next appointment uh, is available, like next hearing would be available. So um, really long um, periods of time, you know, so others like Fadi happened to apply at a time where he got it in a relatively shorter period, you know, less than uh, um, two years. Uh, so uh, Uh, In order to follow these cases, I had to be able to have that timeframe as well, and I was lucky to be able uh, to do so, and in in some cases uh, such as Saad, actually her um, entire pro bono team of lawyers um, changed from the time she applied until her final hearing. It was such a long delay that the attorneys that were at the firm that um, gave her uh, a pro bono team, you know, the, the attorneys moved on to other jobs, to other positions, et cetera. So the entire team was brand new by the end and had to sort of learn her case over again, usually subjecting her to those traumatic experiences of having to uh, retell and to sort of uh, train them uh, on the nuances of her case um, over again. So it was a, a, a real burden to her to to do so. Um, and I happened to be lucky enough to be able to be present for those um, for the duration of her case. So I was the one constant that I hope offered her a small modicum uh, uh, of, of uh, comfort in the process. But uh, I, I had to be um, also able to um, accompany cases for a really long time and, uh, and have but write this uh, um, book over uh, many years so that the, the um, anthropological uh, idea of going into the field for a year or two years would not have worked at all um, uh, in this kind of situation. And I uh, had to sort of um, extend my uh, research to um, uh, fit the very long uh, duration of a lot of asylum cases. Um, but I was, yeah, I was, uh, fortunate to be able to do so um, and uh, uh, be able to withstand that time crunch. And it, it sort of gives a, a, a my, for my for my purposes for writing a book, it's not such a, 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 a life and um, death kind of uh, stakes for the asylum seekers. It's a lot more that those postponements and that long duration much have much higher stakes. So um, much bigger deal yeah. for them
2: yeah of course um absolutely but you know i'm glad you were able to be a constant at least in some of these cases um yeah so you know we've spoken about time my last question will turn that towards the future so what is next for you what are you researching reading or teaching next
1: yeah thanks um I've been lucky that I've been. I'm a little bit of an insider and outsider to academia, so I'm able to take my time to uh, figure out what's next for me in terms of, uh, of research, uh, which is honestly still up in the air at, uh, at this point. Um, I've been inspired by. Uh, teaching students at Fordham University, um, and thinking through with them uh, collaborative research methods. So that's sort of something that I'm toying with at the moment, but um, yeah, I'm not sure. Yet.
2: <laughs> yeah, thanks for sharing that with us. And, you know, like, I feel like this book is, you know, also such a, you know, exemplary work of you know, not just this, you know, stereotypical idea of ethnographer, but putting in certain kinds of works that I'm really excited about um, seeing how you think through collaboration uh, in the future. So I'll be looking forward to that. But for now, thank you very much, Roda, for joining us and for your insights. Thank you so much.
1: I was happy to be here.
2: This is your host, Alizar Arjan. This discussion of the right kind of suffering, gender, sexuality, and Arab asylum seekers in America, published by the University of Texas Press in 2023, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.